You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 144 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Laurie Norris, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, ladies. Hey. Hi. Let's introduce ourselves for all of our listeners, especially those who are new to the program. Katie, start us off. Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Sugarland, Texas, uh, and near Houston, and uh, I teach at Houston Baptist University online, and I live here in Sugarland with my husband, David Grubbs, the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our four kids. Um, I spend most of my time teaching English and spending time with my kids, teaching them at home, but I also teach Bible study uh, every now and then. So that's my life. It sounds like a beautiful, wonderful life. Thanks, friend. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria. Hey, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. I live in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia with my husband, Michael Farmer, also of the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, And I just got a new day job. Uh, By the time this uh, episode drops, I will almost be starting as uh, a member of the research panel team at a large market research firm. Uh, So I'm really excited to get started with a new gig and excited to talk to everyone today about antiheroes. That is awesome, Victoria. Congratulations. That's super exciting. I am Laurie Norris, and I live um, in Athens, Georgia, where I work at the University of Georgia and spend most of my time daydreaming about how to make my garden better and whether or not the rain that keeps coming and won't go away is going to drown my sweet pea plants that I put out too soon because I am a glutton for punishment. Oh no. Yeah, I'm the worst. But they're gonna be great. It's gonna be great. So is this episode. Okay. Today, y'all, we're talking about female antiheroes on screen. Inspired by A.J. Caulfield's 2016 article from the Young Folks website, Bad Girls Club, The Rise of the Female Antihero, we're going to break down what we think this character type is and what it means for our, our whole society. So, let's start with the basics. What is an antihero? Like, simplistically, she's a central character that is well, not particularly heroic, but that alone is a really unsatisfying answer. Caulfield gives us a better one when she says, talking about male antiheroes, that they are the ones we shouldn't love because they're problematic at best and actual criminals at worst, but we never actually hate them because we're conditioned to root for them, to want them to win and destroy all who impede them with abandon. 
There are twisted and dejected, our gloomy and catastrophically created. She continues that these characters are, quote, cunning, self-motivated, oftentimes evil, but still human, neither too brutal to be vi villains, nor too gentle-hearted to be heroes. So, is this the difference between a villain and our anti-hero faves? A brutality? What do you guys think? I think that um, that can certainly be part of it. I was thinking a lot while I was taking notes for this episode about um, anti-heroes and, and the idea of sin and, and human propensity to sin. And I think because, you know, sin, sin is a, a natural fact of our human condition, that it makes sense that we would be drawn to characters who who do that, who don't behave in acceptable ways, who cross borders and do things that we aren't um, typically told to value or replicate um, because it's just, that's the natural human condition. And also because uh, we as humans are both rationalizers and self-justifiers and storytellers. And if we can do both of those things at once, um, we're typically pretty happy about it. So I, I think, yeah, it's, it's part of it, but also we, it's fulfilling because we can see ourselves uh, in these anti-heroes sometimes. I really like that, the idea that it's storytelling at the heart of all of this. It's the stories we have to tell ourselves to justify our maybe less wonderful choices um, that so we can all still think that we're the heroes of our own story. We have to tell ourselves these stories. And I'll say story one more time. Katie. What is your story about these stories? <laughs> um, I was I was thinking about what Victoria said about sin also, and why we therefore appreciate flawed people. Um, and I, I there were and so I would agree with everything Victoria said. But I had a couple of other thoughts. One thought, and I and this is a real question because I don't know. I'm I'm not super familiar with the pantheon of American antiheroes, and I really don't know that much about if this is a, a type that's appreciated around the world, but I wonder if, as Americans, sometimes we don't appreciate an antihero because of the idea, often they are kind of anti-establishment figures, and I think that as Americans, we like to think of ourselves as like, you know, people who started a revolution, right? Like, we got rid of the country that was in charge of us, and we like to stick it to the man. I think we have this kind of like, I don't know, rabble-rousing mentality. And so, because, and that makes me think of Milton Satan, right? Who a lot of times people talk about as the kind of OG anti-hero, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you read Paradise Lost and you root for him, even though he's the obvious bad guy. Um, but that's the allure of Milton Satan is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, right? Like the idea of throwing off the person who's in charge of you and doing your own thing. And I think that at least... For Americans, I think that's another reason we like anti-heroes is because we like a person who um, isn't going to kind of go along to get along or just be subservient to whatever the government or the or social norms or whatever. That was one thing I was thinking about this week. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is that that kind of simplistic definition you said, Laurie, you're right. I don't think it's it's not perfect because. It, it kind of just focuses on what the person's doing. Is the person being heroic or doing heroic things or not? But I, as best I can tell, what so often seems to define anti-heroes is like damage, like past damage. Um, and I think that 
that's something you don't always sometimes you get it in true sometimes you get it in heroes and you know i mean tons of comic book superheroes have really tragic backstories and damage but if you think about somebody like captain america for example like he has grief in his past but you don't get the sense that he's damaged in the way that somebody like annalise keating who we're going to talk about later seems to be portrayed as damaged um, and I think that sometimes that's the difference. That's sometimes I think that's the only difference. If you if if you take two people who were similarly brutal or not brutal, and go is this person a hero or an antihero? I would say look at their background. Are they being painted? Are they being written as a person who is sad but doesn't have damage in their past? Maybe they're probably just supposed to be a straight hero. But if they have a, a backstory that's not just tragic but also in some way damaging or um, traumatic or like whatever, then that person might be, maybe they're trying, maybe they're being written as an anti-hero just because to me it's so often that seems to make the difference. Um, if the, if the brutality thing is not the same, you know, I mean, some, some characters are obvious villains cause it's just like Thanos, right? Obviously Thanos thinks he's the hero of his world. But if you just look at the sheer scale of destruction, he's obviously not. Um, anyway, so that's that was kind of those thoughts are jumbled, but that's what I was thinking about this week. I like that. I like the idea because I am a person who's deeply drawn to antiheroes, um, which we will not turn this into a therapy session for me. But it's the like you said, like almost the honesty about being damaged that. Instead of, you know, just twirling mustaches and, and, you know, tying ladies to train tracks to be an outright villain in response to trauma, I, I, or the Steve Rogers approach was is to be really sad, but also really perfect. I'm not that, you know, I, I'm not Snidely Whiplash and I am not Captain America. I am somewhere in between and uh, find a resonance with these deeply flawed but in many ways still trying kind of people like for me it's the seeing a character struggle attempt to be better and not always succeed like it's kind of uplifting in a really messed up way so that's why I yeah that's why I like these characters, and also they're a lot of fun. Why do you think, y'all, that, like, you like was it Victoria that you mentioned, like, it's the American project to be anti-establishment, or was that Katie? I that was know. me. Okay. Yeah, that okay. was me. So, I really like that. Why do you think, like, with that, and the damage, and the honesty, and, you know, brutality is kind of fun to watch, on, on screen. So why do you think that our culture has so many of these characters now? I think in a in a sort of post 20th century post permanent war age um, if you're thinking about the things that America as a country has been through um, in addition to what Katie said about not trusting authority, um, we, you know, most of us grew up in a, a postmodern period where we've seen lots of examples of the center not holding and there being a lot of gray area. Um, good and evil is not as uh, simple for us as it was for our parents or certainly our grandparents. 
uh, in terms of the stability of social institutions. So I, I think that's some of it. We're we're in a world that is is more shades of gray than black and white. So um, certainly our, our heroes and villains are more shades of gray too. I, I, I mean, I don't know that I could really add that much to that. I think that was a perfect kind of encapsulation of, of most of why I think antiheroes are so popular. And, 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 and this is maybe a, a more cynical take. I think another reason you see so many antiheroes now is that I think there's an idea in our popular culture that it's more, that it's deeper or more, uh, I don't know what the word is, that it's, it's deeper and more complex, perhaps more sophisticated to present an anti-hero than to present a straight hero story. I um, totally agree with that, Katie. I think, um, Laurie, you mentioned Steve Rogers, Captain America earlier. Uh, I am a huge Captain America fan. And I think the reason that I love those movies and, uh, and comics so much is because to me, because we're so awash in anti-heroes, like Katie said, to me, there's a point right now where it's Captain America that actually feels much more countercultural than the anti-hero. Like, give me, give me earnestness because I'm awash in irony all day. Yeah. Oh yeah, 100%. If you look at Prestige TV, it's like jammed to the rafters with morally complicated gray area stories. Like, and so yeah, you're. I think you're right, Victoria. I think that it. I mean, in a very real way, I think anti-heroes pay. Like they make, they're gonna, you know, it, it's it's because they're so popular for all the reasons we've said. We've said that's why they have proliferated is because, you know, if you're if you're in an industry where you need to, you want people to watch what it is so you can make money, and then and you know that people will show up for a really really flawed but interesting antihero. That's what you're gonna do, and so I think that's another reason there are so many, and 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 I think in some ways that's good because it's given rise to now female characters in that same vein, which there didn't used to be. But I also think that it's, in some ways, it is a little sad because you, it, it kind of leaves the straight hero, the, the less morally ambiguous hero by the wayside a little bit. Katie, you are a real professional because that's an excellent transition to the question I want to ask you guys now, which is, okay, so we're awash in anti-heroes and 100% it is because we are living in the age of peak TV and there are over 500 scripted shit, well, pandemic aside, over 500 scripted shows. And so you gotta come up with something and straight earnestness doesn't run for three seasons and a movie, you know? Like, okay, that aside, what is the difference between the male anti-heroes that have populated most of our cultural history and the female anti-heroes that we're starting to see now and that we'll be talking about later? I think part of the difference is social and cultural expectation. We expect women, as much as we're, you know, post-feminist and all of those things, there is still a pretty large degree to which our society expects women to be softer and more nurturing and less self-involved. Uh, and I, I like the way in which female anti-heroes uh, push against that and challenge it. Um, are are more complex because of course you know all everything we just said about sin a few minutes ago is true of of men and women um, but we I think we're still dealing culturally with a lot of you know post Victorian morality angel in the house 
holdover stuff, um, even if we don't want to think that we are. That's what I was going to say, too. I feel like so often in the past in popular culture, you would see women in that more kind of saintly role, like Victoria just mentioned, or as straight up villains, because we know that, you know, women have been portrayed uh, as villainous in many uh, in many contexts and much less in the middle gray area like we were talking about. So I think that it's um, it's an outgrowth of a more general trend in popular culture of women being granted, female characters being granted more complexity in general, I think, um, in the last decades. And it's, I think it took the longest for, for that kind of complexity to penetrate into this area of anti-heroes. Um, and I, I don't know why that is, but I also think it, some of it could also just be a temporal thing too, because it took, I don't know, it took time for the male anti-hero, right, to kind of gain ascendancy. You know, it wasn't, it's not like that all along this whole time there have been male characters like this, and then it's just now we're finally getting around to female anti-heroes. I mean, it took a long time for the male anti-hero to get as popular as he is today. And then after that point, after all of that kind of like march toward, you know, male character complexity, then now female anti-heroes happen. So, you know, I, I think those are some of the reasons it's such a recent development. What do you think, Laurie? Uh, I think that there's, like, both of you are absolutely dead on because you're, you're brilliant and wonderful human beings and uh, you know what you're talking about. And some of some of my take on this is because I am still writing my dissertation on prestige drama and and I am going to try and hold back some of my uh, conversation with myself about this because um, no one needs to see the rough draft of my mind right now. Um, I think that the female anti-hero, cynically, is ascendant right now because she sells uh people got a little bit tired of the white male anti-hero that saw in the, the the 21st century the tony sopranos and the walter whites of the world and they got a little bored because the novelty wore off now what what have what haven't we done yet oh let's let's make a woman the lead character ooh let's make her complicated ooh she farts too um that is it's just it's the new novel thing it's the let's scratch a new itch let's create a new problem for something to solve because we have 24 hours a day to fill on 500 channels and we need uh we need new we need now our attention spans they're not long and uh I think it's the, the the unintended benefit of the the patriarchal system that had kept women in the exactly two roles, the Madonna or the whore, that uh, now that we need more stories to tell, someone is finally realizing that there's space in between. So you can have a Madonna, you can have a whore, and you can have basically any Charlize Theron character, and uh, it's it's about making money. That's my thoughts on that. I, I think you're probably right about that. <laughs> like, because, I mean, you know, whatever, what, what, 
yeah, you're right. There's there's an endless need for novelty. And it's also true, right, that any one kind of show that's a new idea that succeeds, of course, then there's going to be like 10 copies of it because, you know, everybody else wants to get some of that pie, right, a piece of that pie. And so why wouldn't the same thing happen with female anti-heroes, you know? Yes, I think... I think we've built up to it. I think it's time to start actually talking specifics, give some deets. So we're gonna cover three particular characters here. There are a lot, like I said, basically anything Charlize Theron has done. Um, she's a master of the, the female anti-hero. Um, in a previous podcast episode, I tried my very best not to swear about uh, Beth Harmon from The Queen's Gambit is a perfect example of an anti-hero and also someone who drives me crazy. Uh, they're like Cersei Lannister and Daenerys Targaryen. Those are some examples. So they're the female anti-hero. She's all out there, but we have selected three to talk about right now. So, Katie, you're going to open us up. Have at it. So listeners, I'm going to be very upfront with you that I am not a person who normally uh, watches things that feature anti-heroes. So this is a new realm for me. And so the character that I'm going to talk about in a moment, um, it, I have the ex obsessive level of knowledge of a new convert simply because this is, I just started wa watching this show <laughs> recently. And um, so I have a lot of, I have a lot of knowledge about this, but this is not a show and this is not a character that I watched unfold slowly over time um, as she was being developed throughout the six seasons of the TV show. So let me just preface that right now. So if you're a super fan of the show, I'm sorry, because I'm sure that I'm gonna leave out something that you would love for me to say. So I'm gonna talk about Annalise Keating from How to Get Away with Murder. And which is, if I'm being honest, one of the more annoyingly long TV titles that I've ever encountered. <laughs> I, I get why they called the show that, but it's really annoying because anytime you're typing about it or anything, you either have to abbreviate it or type out all of those words. Um, so this was a was because it, it just finished its last season, um, I think in 2020, American legal thriller television series um, produced by Shonda Rhimes uh, in Shondaland. And it went for six seasons. It finished May 14th, 2020. And Star. This is it, it. It is a show that has many characters, but I would never call this show an ensemble drama in the sense that everyone gets equal focus. Because Annalise Keating is the focus. Um, the whole show revolves around her character, and she's a law professor at a fictional. I think it's fictional, Middleton, uh, which is supposed to be in Philadelphia, fictional college. And she and I, when I first watched this show, I texted Laurie and said, okay, wait, I didn't know this was basically Legally Blonde, but like a tragic murder story. <laughs> because that's how the beginning of the, the first episode, that's how the pilot feels. It's the first day at law school and there are these new students and they're trying to figure out their intimidating teacher and a guy walks in unprepared and she eviscerates him, right? Um, and so it felt... I, I, I was a little bit um, put off by the beginning because I think it made it feel like it was gonna be a lighter show than it really was. But rapidly that became clear that it is, this is not a legally blonde situation, it is rife with murder. Um, and it's a TV series that um, intercuts all the time consistently between past and future. So in the first season, you have this constant intercutting between um, the things the students are doing. Um, she selects five students to be her interns from her 
for her 1L class. And so they are helping do kind of the grunt work and the research and stuff for her cases that she's taking on as a defense attorney. And I should have said that at the beginning. I'm sorry. She's she's not. It's, this isn't corporate law. This She's a defense attorney. Um, and I love that that's the job that she has, because I think we're conditioned by kind of popular culture, but also by life and by our assumptions about the legal system that we would expect a defense attorney to be like a white hat good guy or good girl, I should say, I guess, you know, oh, this is the person who tries to defend innocent people. And um, and then you begin to watch and you realize she will do anything to win her case. I mean, and so from episode one, she has her students, you know, doing things that we would consider unethical, um, sneaking around, spying, um, you know, using false pretenses. Um, in the first episode, one of, and she doesn't tell him to do this, but in the first episode, one of her students sleeps with a guy to get um, access to information. And later on, she knows exactly how this information was gotten and he's rewarded for it, for this behavior, right? Um, of using sex to get information. And so it's clear from the beginning that I think, I think that she, for her, practicing law as a defense attorney is about getting, at least in the beginning, is about getting the win. That's how it seems. It's about getting the win, not about um, helping people, what we would call in, in, in a more kind of sentimental sense, not helping people. And she says, maybe in the first episode or possibly the second, that people, she tells her students, people always ask me, well, what if your client's guilty? Or you know, how do you know if your client's innocent? And she says, basically, I don't care. For my purposes, it doesn't matter if my client is guilty or innocent. My job is to get them off, to, to, to help them um, to be declared innocent. And so um, you know from the very beginning that she is not the, you know, white-hatted defense attorney who's, you know, going to go down fighting to try to, you know, um, help an innocent person. Um, she is looking on it as a job and um, a job that she is incredibly good at. And she always wants to live up to her own standard of perfection um, and get, you know, every every person who comes into contact with her, get that person declared innocent. And so through the first um, season, then there's this intercutting between the present where they're helping her with cases. So in that sense, that side of the story is episodic. But then the other side are these cuts into the future that show you the kind of um, the aftermath of a murder. And we don't know until partway through the first season who's been murdered, why this person's been killed, what's going to happen. Um, but eventually everyone in the main cast, you realize, is all caught up in this murder, um, which and spoilers, listeners, I'm sorry, we, we, we already decided we can't do this episode without spoilers. So spoiler alert, um, the dead body's her husband uh, and her students have been the ones who have um I don't want to say killed him because it's a little, it's a way more complicated than that. Um, they are, they are responsible for his death. I'm going to say it that way. And so um, then you get to see her decide to protect all of them by hiding this fact um, for various reasons that are too complicated to go into. And so through the whole series of the, that's, that's kind of like a, a closer focus on the first season. Cause that's when she's getting established as a character. Um, to me and is in the first season you really through each episode you get to know more about her so in, in the first season for example you learn what her damage is right we talked about anti-heroes as damage you learn that she was um, she was sexually abused as a very young girl by a family member um, and this was something that was never addressed in her family it just happened and then no one else ever said anything about it um, though you later find out that um, her mom 
purposely burned down the house with that man inside later. So it was known that this happened to her. There was no talk about it, but justice was done. Um, and that fact kind of sends her for a loop. Um, you know, you find out that the relationship that she's had with her husband has been bad in various ways. You find out that she was his mistress um, and that that's how they get together. And that, you know, caused complications. She um, also he was her therapist, you know, when they met, like, I mean, all these things, all these bad things in her past, they all kind of come to the front or come 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 to light, I should say, in the first season and let you know how she became the person that she is. Um, and the other thing you get to see in the first season that I really appreciate is you get to see how she, what her walls are, how she protects herself from being vulnerable with um, other people. And one way that she does that is actually in her physical appearance. So in the first season, you know, almost all the time, she is, you know, perfectly turned out, amazing suit, high heels, impeccable hair, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and then there's an episode, maybe two or three episodes in, I can't remember, where she's had a, it's been a terrible day and all of these things have happened. I think that she's already realizing, she's starting to realize that she can't trust her own husband and she's just done, like emotionally set, spent. And there's a long sequence, I mean, relatively long considering what actually happens is that she sits in front of the mirror and takes off her, takes off her eyelashes she wipes off all of her makeup and she takes off her wig and so that you can see her natural hair underneath. And it's like she's kind of removing the armor that she puts on um, in a parallel scene, episodes and episodes later, when she's been through a terrible time and has, you know, just been kind of um, done, has been in bed for days, depressed, whatever, you see the reverse happen. You see her kind of get her feet back up underneath herself realize that she's ready to take action again and you see her put all of those things back on on go the eyelashes on goes the wig it's a different wig she's changing her hair up like puts her makeup back on and steps out again ready to conquer right and i really appreciate the way that this show kind of um, intertwines that the idea of the performance of femininity i'll say it that way with her character um, because so many of the things that she does um, in terms of brutal decisions that she makes, things that she does that we might think of as cold, calculated, whatever. So many of the things that she does, we might see coded in, in other shows or in a different context as masculine. Um, but her character is also presented as as very much uh, performing femininity, at least um, at the same time. That's that's kind of everything that I wanted to say about her. Um, you know, Laurie or Victoria, do you guys have anything to say about her? Any questions you want to ask me? Uh, I just wanted to say I'm really glad that you talked about that incredibly pivotal scene in the first season where Annalise uh, removes her eyelashes and wig and makeup. Uh, I remember watching that the first time uh, when I was watching season one, and I fully wept in my house. Uh, seeing her take all of those uh, visuals of the performance of femininity, as you so wonderfully put it, off. Um, I felt that within my bones. I mean, I, I think that we all do that to a degree as women. Um, we all 
have to prepare ourselves to meet the faces that we meet, as T.S. Eliot says. But as, as women, there's a, a kind of extra pressure in terms of cosmetics and, and looking the right way, I think. And it is really powerful to see someone who is so tough and strong uh, be vulnerable in the privacy of her own room and kind of let herself remove that social pressure. And I know I read an interview with um, Viola Davis, who plays Annalise, and she said that that scene was actually her idea. It was not originally scripted. Uh, when they were filming the episode and she said, here's what I think we should do and here's why. Um, and I, I think it was an, an amazing visual and emotional choice. That's awesome. I didn't know that that was Davis's idea. That's that's amazing. I love it too. It's, I think the most crucial scene in that first season because not only is it just, it's spectacularly well done staging the camera work the close-up that we get on on her exhaustion as she's just as you say removing her armor it's so great but it's also the the fulcrum for the uh, for our understanding of Annalise as a protagonist because we get to see that she's not just this hard face that she shows everybody like she hides everything from everyone if this show would not exist if anyone was just honest ever um but we see we see like the camera lets us see her honesty and we that's our really our first time understanding that everything about the Annalise Keating persona is performance the the highly staged hyperfemininity the very specifically black femininity that that she has but also all of these traits these sort of ball buster kind of actions the like the the fights the the aggression everything is a performance because she's got a job to do and whether that job is for a client in a courtroom or the the job she takes on is sort of uh, I'm not telling you that I see you as my child maternal figure kind of thing she's got going with these these students, particularly one student. It's that scene that lets us know that she is a much more complicated person than we've, we've thought. And the whole show, I don't understand how, like, they, they didn't realize that they needed a scene like that, but this is why... Viola Davis deserves every award is because she so understands Annalise Keating that she knew that the series needed this moment. It's not just so she get to show off because this is a really it's a really great scene as an actor, but it needed that. The show was missing that. It was missing the this is why she's not a villain. This is why she is actually kind of the hero of this story. And I just love it so much. You know, and you said, Lori, everything's a performance, like down to her name, because Annalise isn't her name, not her original name. That is such, mom, a, such a great point. Such yeah, a great her, point. When her mom shows up, you find out that she was born, I think, Anna May, I think is her name. Her mom calls her Anna May, and she yes. gets really mad and yes. says, I've asked you to call me Annalise, and her mom brushes, her mom played by the fairly recently deceased and much lamented Cicely Tyson. Such um, a great performance from Tyson. So yeah. good. 
really is. And I should say, too, over the course of the seasons, um, she kind of delves into areas that that feel more like what we would more traditionally think of as heroic. So later on, she takes on this big class action lawsuit about mismanaged cases. Um, and you get to see even more of her background and, and kind of past griefs and things. So I think the longer that the show went on, the more and more and more they kind of complicated her and the more that the, the less like a villain they made her seem. Um, but you can see it even in the first season for all the reasons that Laurie said, you know, um, emotionally you can see in the first season that we're not supposed to think of her as a villain. I just realized like story arc wise, she's breaking good. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. I think the idea of breaking good, um, yeah, I'm going to use that as a completely 100% intentional, absolutely meant to stumble upon that um, transition to our next case study, just mostly for, for time's sake, because we could go on for hours and hours about all of these things. But I think it is time now for Victoria. Tell us what you've got for us. Sure. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Faith Lahane, a character from Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, Faith shows up in season three for the first time, and her main arc takes place for the majority of that season. Uh, and then she has another smaller arc in season four, which I'll also discuss she shows up in the spinoff Angel a lot and in the so-called ninth season comic. I'm not going to talk about those uh, just because there's there's not enough time. So Faith is initially just a, a super obvious foil to our heroine Buffy Summers right out of the gate. Um, not just because Faith is also a slayer. Um, Faith is the visual and tonal opposite of Buffy. She is darker. Um, her hair and clothes and makeup are darker, but she's also darker in terms of her backstory, her difficult childhood. Um, Katie mentioned damage as being a hallmark of the anti-hero. That is certainly, certainly true of Faith. She tells us about her alcoholic mother and says that slaying is basically her perfect life because it lets her take out the physical aggression she has on the world and that it discourages emotional attachments to other people. Uh, so she fits into the slaying life immediately. Um, if you know anything about Buffy Summers as a heroine, you know it sort of takes Buffy a while to get in the right emotional space to accept her destiny as a slayer. Uh, when Faith shows up, we know immediately that she is cool. Uh, she's sexualized much more overtly than Buffy. Um, I believe there is no time in season three where Faith is not wearing either a leather jacket or leather pants or both. Um, lots of uh, leather and darker eyeliner, darker lipstick, um, the visual cues of the bad girl. She immediately wins over Buffy's friends, uh, referred to in the Whedonverse as the Scooby Gang. Uh, with her devil-may-care demeanor, uh, she wants to dance and party and have fun and have sex with boys and uh, calls Buffy high-strung a lot, so we know that they are very different people. 
Uh, Buffy and Faith are friends for a minute, but things turn and get bad. Uh, we start to see Faith as more of an anti-hero when, while they're on patrol, she accidentally kills a human who she thinks is a vampire. And then we see the moral difference between Faith and Buffy. Uh, Faith says, I don't care. It just happened. People die all the time. And Buffy says, you know, no, this was a human. You need to go to the police. And after that kind of moral uh, split off, Faith starts to work for the mayor of Sunnydale, uh, which is in the parlance of the show that season's big, bad primary villain. And that's when things start to really get interesting for her as a character uh, because the mayor who is much creepier, honestly, watching this as a 35-year-old than uh, he was when I first watched this when I was 15. Um, I just kind of thought he was weird and square and out of step, and he is. He's got sort of strange uh, Ward Cleaver vibes and feelings about Americana and what clean-cut teenagers should do. but there's a strange, his relationship to Faith is very paternalistic and he wants to take care of her, but it's it's a very creepy uh, taking care. And all of this comes to a head at the end of season three. Uh, the mayor is actually, spoilers again, and I'm about to say some weird stuff because the Wheaton verse is super weird in general. Uh, so I don't think I've ever made a sentence like this before, but the mayor is actually a like nine foot tall dragon demon who wants to feed on the entire town. And this is why he gives the commencement address at Sunnydale High's graduation. So uh, <laughs> the Scoobies and the rest of the graduating class have to fight him. Before this has happened, Faith and Buffy have gotten in a very big fight because essentially there's not uh, room enough for two slayers in Sunnydale. During this fight, Buffy stabs Faith and she falls into the back of a speeding truck down the highway. She's in a coma. She comes to Buffy in a dream and says, you can use me to defeat the mayor. I am his weakness. So you get a kind of self-sacrifice even though It's not physical because she's in a coma uh, and they triumph at graduation. So that's plot number one. She goes from foil to villain to anti-hero who sacrifices herself for good. And that's the last we see of her until two episodes in the middle of season four, which are very strange. Uh, The center of them is she gets this packet from the mayor who has died in the graduation fight and he tells her that the package will help her not be alone and it's this sort of spiritual bomb thing that causes faith and buffy to switch bodies and then things get gross in a different way when uh faith lots of reviews say has sex with i am going to say rapes because it is sexual coercion and he does not know who he is sleeping with uh buffy's boyfriend riley and when buffy is faith and faith is buffy they start to understand things about each other 
Um, but the most important moment, I think, in this body switching episode is when they are fighting and uh, Faith in Buffy's body is essentially punching herself over and over. She calls herself disgusting and murderous and uh, refers to herself as the B word, uh, which I will not say because we have to bleep, but it becomes clear in that moment that she wants to cause herself physical harm, uh, that she's very emotionally damaged and, um, and has just really deeply negative views of herself. Um, so that that's most of what I will say about Faith as a character. Um, starts off as a very simplistic foil, gets more interesting, uh, but I would say that she's not as deep or as rich um, an anti-hero as someone like Annalise Keating, maybe just because she doesn't have enough time to develop, uh, at least on the primary show and not the spinoff. But also I think because there's not really any time where Faith's character development is about Faith's character development and not about how our, um, our opinion as viewers of Buffy the heroine um, is, is supposed to be shaped. So she's, she's never really about herself entirely. It's always about how Buffy is reflected and, and growing and changing. I think that's a really, really brilliant point. And I have a question about, okay, so Faith is a little disappointing as an anti-hero because I think, like you said, because she was a foil first. So do anti-heroes really only succeed when they are the protagonist? Is there room for a successful anti-hero who is not the center of a story? Huh, that's a really good question. I, you know, that's a really good question. And I, that's a hard one because I feel like often what happens is you have a character who who's not the protagonist who in another story might be an anti-hero but because they're in the story with the heroic protagonist they're just the villain does that make sense like um because yeah, you said is there does. room like it makes me think of i don't know if you guys have seen it and i feel like i mentioned it to laurie but this was weeks ago in um if you guys have watched agent carter um there's this character dotty is what they call her who knows what yeah. her original name was yeah, okay yeah. dotty dotty's like the black widow but she never became a hero Basically, she's like she was given the exact same training as the Black Widow. Um, to me, she's kind of an anti-hero, especially because in, um, sh- there are moments when she is useful. Um, there are times, and she has this weird fascination with Peggy Carter. Like, um, and there, it, it's an interesting dyad. But like to me, if you put her in a different story, she potentially could be an anti-hero because you get a lot. You get a lot about her background. You get to see her damage and how she became the way she is. Like, but because she's in that story with Peggy Carter, she's the, a villain. Like to me, she's portrayed as a villain, not an anti-hero. So in that case, no, there's not room, I suppose. If the anti-hero is in the same story with the protagonist, often they just end up a villain. It sounds like they tried to do that with Faith. Faith? Did I say yeah. it right? Yeah, yeah, Faith. Okay, sorry. I, I, I momentarily had a huge, huge breakup. Um, it sounds like maybe they tried to do that with her and tried to put an anti-hero in her in the story with, with Buffy, the hero, but it, like you said, it doesn't totally work. So I don't know if there is room. I'm not sure about that, Lord. I also think it, in terms of Faith and Buffy, it doesn't quite work because I would argue that 
there aren't a lot of heroes in that show. Like, I think you could certainly make an argument for Buffy herself being an anti-hero um, because she's very flawed and selfish. Um, I mean, Faith tells us a lot that Buffy is, you know, just a stick in the mud and doesn't want to have any fun. And her lines between good and evil are um, are black and white. Um, I'm not sure that's actually true. Buffy's a really flawed uh, character, particularly in later seasons, the way she treats her friends. Um, there's a lot of emotional and sexual damage in Buffy's relationships with men. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't think that quite works uh, for Faith because I think Buffy's kind of got a, a toe on the anti-hero side of things already. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Buffy sort of starts out in some ways as like just a straight up hero but i think the nature of the story that she's in corruption gets in like it's the spider-man thing you know um wait not spider-man that is okay now i always feel silly because that's you know with great power comes great responsibility but what i was actually thinking was you know classical roman uh power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and I think that's what we're seeing with Buffy is the corruption that comes with power where I think that actually makes Faith kind of interesting is because she's presented as somewhat already corrupted and she gets to be redeemed even though it's Buffy who is uh, regularly brought back from the dead and resurrected a la Jesus. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's really interesting. The idea that the the power of a of a protagonist is too much to have a secondary successful antihero. But what then when um, a story is populated with basically nothing but villains? Which is my transition to my case study. I am going to be talking about Veronica Sawyer from Michael Lehman's 1989 Stone Cold classic, Heathers. Spoiler alert, I love this movie so much. Also, spoiler alert, I want to quote everything this movie says, but then it would just sound like beep, 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 beep for the rest of the episode, so I'm not going to. So... Everybody say a little prayer for me that I can get through this without swearing and really making all of our admins mad. Okay. So Heathers. Heathers is an Anish Kapoor level black comedy. Um, like blacker than black, blacker than night. Um, it is set in a Westerberg High in Westerberg, Ohio, which is a archetypal cliche high school filled with cliched stereotypes of it's all all it is is about the nature of cliche that's the spoiler is it's trying to deconstruct all of these cliches via violence veronica sawyer our protagonist is a member of the meanest mean girls clique ever the heathers they are so called because her quote-unquote three best friends are all impossibly named Heather. Heather Chandler, the ringleader, who wears red. Heather McNamara, the cheerleader, 
who wears yellow, and Heather Duke, the Shannon Doherty, so the conniving social climber, who is forced to wear green despite really wanting that big red scrunchie of power for herself. The Heather's world revolves around keggers at the local college and being generally terrible toward everyone else around them. Why they're popular, I don't really know, but I didn't understand teenagers when I was one. We're introduced to Veronica as she's in junior in high school. She We get the story that she turned away from her true friends in her childhood and tor- turned towards the Heathers in order to get a taste of their power and popularity. So at the beginning of the movie, she is somewhat uncomfortable with her position her in the social hierarchy, pushes back, chafes a little at the, the rather obnoxious and cruel demands of Heather Chandler. And that is the perfect entry point for Jason Dean the baddest bad boy who ever bad boyed ever played by christian slater and doing his best jack nicholson impersonation it must be pointed out oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh it, it i yeah it it's so so it's it is it is so distracting at times that he he is just pretending to be jack nicholson as a teenager but yet as it, it's it's very charismatic and it's very charming and there's a reason why Jack Nicholson was the biggest celebrity in the world for a really long time. So Veronica bespies this dark charisma presence across the 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 cafeteria and that is when her world starts to change a little bit. Um she gets gets wrapped up with uh with jd literally on a croquet set um and they start talking about how horrible all of veronica's friends are and how terrible it is to be a teenager and shouldn't somebody do something about it and at jd's very very sociopathic prodding they decide to knowing full well that heather is heather chandler it should be said, is at home uh, trying to sleep off a horrible hangover from the party she dragged Veronica to the night before that was just terrible and they had a huge fight. Veronica and JD go over, and in Veronica's mind, to Heather Chandler's house to prank her, um, to trick her into something. Veronica doesn't really know. JD's got plans. Uh, So... Veronica, JD, they're in Heather Chandler's kitchen, and Veronica's like, oh, we should give her something and call it a hangover cure, but it'll just make her sick, like milk and orange juice with loogies in it. And JD responds, or we could give her Drano. And Veronica, no, that's stupid. Let's just try and make her throw up. And doesn't notice that uh, JD switches the, the cups and they go in to see Heather Chandler, who awakes and is B-word to the B-wordiest towards them. And she's she immediately susses out that Veronica is trying to prank her. But JD then, um, you know, does that whole reverse psychology thing and calls Heather a chicken and says, you won't even drink this 
cup of grossness. And she's like, just give it to me. And she downs it real fast. And then, shocker, it was Drano. And she dies, crashing into a table. And they're murderers now. To her credit, Veronica freaks out. Because that is not a good thing to have happened to her so-called best friend. Uh, JD sort of takes over a somewhat more suspiciously level head and they can she he, they decide to stage the murder, the death as a suicide. And the rest of the story, the rest of the movie involves a lot more stage suicides and Veronica getting deeper and deeper into JD's ultimate plan, which is to destroy the entire school. He is a black duster jacket wearing loner who has traveled all over the country with his creepy father and just been a creep everywhere he goes. And we don't notice that he is made out of red flags because uh, Christian Slater is so charming. I mean, we notice. We notice as Veronica is noticing. And, but we all get swept up in, in the charisma until Veronica decides to push back and say, no, I've had enough is enough. We have murdered three people at this point. I'm not going to murder anyone else. Um, except JD then decides he wants to murder literally everyone. And Veronica becomes a sort of Yep, yep, she transitions into a straight-up hero because she stops his attempt to murder everyone by blowing up the school during a pep rally and instead watches him blow himself up. And, um, I, okay, y'all, you guys want to talk for a second because I'm getting really distracted by how I cannot say any of the really great lines from this movie. So, uh... What do you guys think about, is, is Veronica a hero at the end? Does she make that actual turn? Or is, is she still kind of, kind of the villain who's just in the middle of the story? Uh, I'll tell a quick story that is related to those opinions. Uh, so I was in seventh grade and seventh grade was for me, as it is for many folks, just completely horrible and uh, I hated the popularity contest of middle school and I remember coming uh, going to visit my mom one weekend and saying just like these people are so awful I hate them Uh, I wish none of them were around they would just leave me alone and my mom in like kind of to this day the coolest mom move ever um I guess if I'm seventh grade, it's it's the late 90s, and uh, she goes and rents Heather's from the video store and brings it to me and says, uh, we're going to watch this movie and, and talk about how you feel about your classmates. And so we did. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, I, I'm not sure I was quite ready for that movie. Um, it is rather uh, graphic and disturbing, uh, but... I I do think it was actually a really great entry point into that conversation because something that it taught me was basically, you know, everybody has their crap, um, that that high school hierarchy is 
the way it is because everyone is insecure and horrible and acting on their worst impulses. And so uh, we were able to kind of talk through that. And it was a little cathartic for me to um, to see the deaths in the movie and think, you know, I, I don't really want that to happen to people that I know um, and and help me understand that, you know, when, when people are being mean to you, sometimes the problem is, is with them. Uh, but to, to answer your question, Laurie, um, I, I don't know that I think Veronica goes all the way back around, um, to being a hero. I think she certainly makes strides, but, um, I don't want to give her all the credit because, you know, when the hierarchy doesn't exist anymore because you have murdered it, I'm, I'm not sure that's an actual victory. Like, I, I don't think she's actually doing the work to, uh, to get rid of the toxic uh, femininity of that movie just because she killed everyone, and some toxic masculinity too. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess it depends on what actually happens to Veronica and Martha um, when they're they're leaving the school, like she's actually friends with Martha after that, then yes, I guess maybe she is a hero, but I'm I'm not so sure. I don't, I, yeah, I don't have any con- confident kind of pronouncement about that either, because I guess it suppose it depends on how which way you're trying to judge her heroism, because like Victoria said, I, I don't think you could say she's come around to being a hero if you think about, you know, the ways. The, the 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 fact that she it's not it's not as if she's replaced this hierarchy with a better hierarchy that then the same people grow to appreciate right it's not like she you know helped all the heathers learn to love themselves and other people <laughs> or you know and then and then everything became happy like um i mean in the sense of in the kind of action movie sense like the big disasters averted you could maybe say she's a hero right because she helps avert this explosion that's going to kill everybody but in the larger sense of kind of personally and in her own character development, I don't know that you could say that she's come around to being a hero in the end. I think it's super interesting, Katie, that the sort of she didn't you said she didn't teach the Heathers to love themselves and other people um, because the the ending that you have described is essentially the ending of Mean Girls. Yep. Uh, Mean Girls, written by Mark Waters, brother of Daniel Waters, screenwriter of Heather's. So, what? Uh, yeah, uh, what? I, I think it's that's that's fascinating and has always um, struck me as really interesting that those movies are um, kind of the the same but shot in different uh, colors and tones, and one of them goes much further than the other. For real, yeah, yeah. The Waters family household must be interesting so there's a line in the first Waters Brothers movie um, that I think it, it just sort of sticks well a lot of lines stick with me clearly I've, I've been talking about the ones I can't tell you about uh, but it's to fr- JD to Victoria right after uh, see I did it I called I called Veronica Victoria I knew it was going <laughs> to happen oh, okay so Christian Slater does not address this to Victoria. He addresses it to Winona Ryder's character because they are not the same people. Um, Right after they have staged the 
double suicide of Kurt and Ram, the obnoxious jocks, the date rapist jocks, um, and staged it to make it look like the the two guys killed themselves um, because they were gay and Ohio wasn't ready for it. And uh, Veronica is is sort of castigating JD about how, how he could possibly convince her of all of these horrible things. And he says, you believed it because you wanted to believe it. Your true feelings were too icky and gross to face. And uh, that sort of sticks with me. It's um, one, being a teenager sucks. It's nothing but icky and gross feelings all the time. And when you put it in the most arch heightened uh, affected framework like like this movie of course it's going to result in a body count um, but I think that's really interesting as it, like we've been talking about anti-heroes and whether or not they have emotional honesty because of the their damage and they're not just lying and being perfect or they have flaws because of it I think it's kind of interesting that it seems to be for Veronica in that moment, the idea that she is facing her own culpability is what, it's not so much the killing that sends her away from JD. It's not liking who she is anymore. And you see, she it's after that point that she tries to reconnect with um, her friend Betty, because Betty and Veronica, from childhood. She starts trying not very hard, but she does start trying to find a better version of herself. So maybe that's the hero part in Antiheroes, is the attempt, trying to find the better version. Like, it takes the pressure off. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to always have been already Steve Rogers. There's room in the middle. There's room in the gray for schmucks who are just trying to be better people. And that that makes me feel, like, really good, you know? Like, I can try. I don't have to have the Yoda just do all the time. I may not, I may fail, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. I may be an anti-hero of my own story, but I am trying. So, do you ladies have Anything you'd like to say, like to add about our conversation uh, before we wrap up? Uh, I don't. I think we've covered quite a lot of material. Katie? Yeah, I'm good too. I think, yeah, no, I'm good. I think that you said it all. I mean, the and the only other thing I thought, and it's a one, it's, it's a one sentence thing that just occurred to me, which is that when you're talking about trying, maybe in the end, one of the differences one of the major differences between a hero and an anti-hero is that um, if you have an anti-hero who has trauma or damage or something in the past, that person might want to be the, a good person, but they have to try in a way maybe that your hero doesn't have to try. Yeah. You know, it's just easier for that person. And I think that maybe that's one of the biggest differences. That's really great. I like that. Okay. So let's pass some stuff on to our listeners. Katie, what do you got for us? I'm going to be entirely predictable because I actually already mentioned it in this episode, but I'm going to recommend Agent Carter um, because, and I would say it's particularly season two. I feel weird saying recommending season two because you kind of, I mean, I suppose you could go straight to season two. There were only two seasons of Agent Carter um, and it's on Disney plus. 
if um, if you have Disney Plus listeners. Um, you could maybe skip straight to season two, but you might be a little confused. So going back to season one might be better. But in season two of Agent Carter, you have Dottie is still around, the kind of Russian assassin girl from the first season who I, I think reads a little bit anti-hero to me. But also the big villain in season two of Agent Carter is a woman. And in a lot of ways, she's she's presented as a villain, but also they give her some of the same beats that you would give an anti-hero and that you get to see extensive kind of flashbacks to her past, um, to her traumatic past, um, how she became the person she is. Um, she's like a super genius um, inventor kind of person. Um, and you so much of the things that she does she sees herself as serving the cause of science and progress. So in the beginning, she doesn't start out, you know, killing people or being villainous for, for the sake of villainy. She's she's chasing scientific discovery, but what she's chasing is going to destroy everybody. Um, and so to me, the 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 main villain in that season two of Agent Carter also feels a little bit like an anti-hero, though the, the farther it goes, the worse she gets and kind of you know becomes really just a straight up villain um so that's my recommendation is uh agent carter particularly season two thanks katie victoria what would you like to pass on i am gonna recommend a fairly recent film uh craig gillespie's 2017 film i tanya uh which is a delicious anti-hero story uh, telling the story of Tanya Harding, U.S. figure skater, who orchestrates an attack on her rival, uh, Nancy Kerrigan. And I remember I was a, a young child when this happened, and the media narrative was so interesting around it because Kerrigan is painted as this kind of all-American girl, and Harding, uh, who is lower class, um, is painted as, you know, essentially trailer trash who falls in with the wrong uh, crowd. And there's a lot of talk about her boyfriend sort of convincing her that they need to take out this rival and a friend of his um, attacks Kerrigan hits her with a pipe in the kneecap. And the film is very interesting because it does uh, present Harding and also her mother um, played wonderfully by Alice and Janney. Uh, Margot Robbie plays uh, plays Harding, says that really she is an anti-hero because um, she never had a chance at achieving the American dream. And so it really ties into the things Katie was saying earlier about the anti-hero as being particularly American um, because he or she is anti-establishment and, and fighting against the system. Uh, it's a really interesting portrayal of class and femininity and how those things intersect. Uh, so I would recommend it. Uh, I, Tanya came out in 2017, directed by Craig Gillespie. Thank you. Uh, those are both really spectacular recommendations. And now I am a little self-conscious that I uh, have chosen not something on the screen because I just remembered what we were titling this episode. But whatever, I'm going to barrel through and recommend to you my favorite character in all of English letters ever. Were I to have children, one of them would be named after her. It would That's Enid Coleslaw from Daniel Klaus's um, uh, comic Ghost World. I, it is perhaps, again, 
we're not in my therapy session, but it is perhaps very telling, uh, that this is my favorite piece of literature that I have ever encountered. I see far too much of myself in, in Enid. Uh, you can watch the movie version. It's not bad. It's not as good. And, it's, and Enid is not as complicated as she is in the comics. She, she is occasionally heroic, but she is always chafing at expectation. And even when she's attempting to be the better version of herself, she gets in her own way. And it's, it's just, I, th I think it's uh, Klaus's masterwork. Most people agree with me because I'm right. Um, but I wholeheartedly recommend the entire graphic novel. So thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Katie and Victoria, I'm Laurie. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Louisa Hall's Speak. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.